Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 147th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jeff Dobines. Jeff is the founder of Southwestern Investment Group, a hybrid advisory firm based in the Nashville area that oversees nearly $3.5 billion of assets under management. What's unique about Jeff, though, is the way he's been able to develop next-generation talent in this firm, with a deliberate focus on not hiring experienced career changers or advisors with an existing book of business, but instead bringing in new advisors in their 20s and giving them the opportunity to learn alongside experienced advisors from day one in a two-year mentoring program. In this episode, we talk in depth about the two-year mentoring program that Jeff's firm has built, why Jeff views it as so critical for new advisors to spend the bulk of their time sitting alongside a senior advisor in every client meeting, how they compensate their new advisors while they're effectively being paid to learn, how they split the cost of talent between the firm itself and the senior advisor who's being supported, and the tasks that they ultimately hand off to the new advisor to create value for the firm while the learning process is still ongoing. We also talk about the marketing approach that Southwestern Investment Group has used to grow to nearly $3.5 billion of assets under management over the past 17 years. The way the firm got so deeply involved in Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider ELP program, the effective return on investment that Jeff's firm has gotten by proactively spending money to get leads, and how Jeff handles the concern that Dave Ramsey is viewed as somewhat controversial by some within the advisor community itself. And be certain to listen to the end, where Jeff talks about the way he structured leadership within the firm to handle the load of managing more than 100 employees, the way he involves senior advisors of the firm in leadership decisions by creating a leadership board, and why he continues to be so focused on attracting and retaining even more next-generation talent into the firm. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jeff Dobines. Welcome, Jeff Dobines, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on the podcast today. I'm excited about this discussion around the the dynamics of, of building advisory firms and bringing in young people. I know you, you've spent a lot of time at your firm with mentorship programs and kind of building teams and figuring out, like, what is this process about how you try to support advisors that are either coming into the business or just trying to grow through that middle stage of the business. And so i just really excited today to talk about what that, what that looks like, what, what you guys have found that works for, for bringing advisors in and trying to develop them. Oh, it's great. You know, that wasn't necessarily always our mission, but I think as we kind of got started and, and the business evolved, that's become an area that we've really been focused on. And I think it's been a lot of fun and it's created a lot of cool opportunity for a lot of young guys, and yeah. I think they're serving the clients well. So we're excited. It's just it's such a shift to me in the industry overall that you know for folks that have been in for I don't know fifteen twenty odd years, we we still kind of remember quote unquote the, the old days mm-hmm. where there were lots of big training programs. You know most made you know, most people got hired by major firms you know, wirehouses and large broker dealers and large insurance companies. And, and they all had training programs. You know, maybe a little bit more sales centric, a little bit less advice centric, some more than others. But like 
they trained you and got you up to speed about how to do this client thing and 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 get some clients and keep some clients. And so many of those programs have been wound down over the years, I think in part because of the the growth of the independent movement. You know, they they figured out after a while that they were mostly just training people who would go and leave them and go independent. So they didn't want to put as much resources into training anymore. And and I feel like it's left this void that we're now all sorting out one one firm at a time of how are you supposed to train and develop advisors as they come into the business and grow their careers over that first you know three five seven ten years before you really get like a full client base and traction and you're on your way on your own yeah you know it's interesting when i think back on a couple stories or ideas that have helped me as you know i fortunately i guess uh, in hindsight it was pretty frustrating at the time but i when I came out of school, I was going to work at Merrill or Edward Jones, but I had a family friend. This was in the kind of late 90s that was a, an accountant, had a great tax practice, was really well-respected, and he was trying to get into the investment business. So a lot of CPAs at that time were trying to, to start an investment practice. And so I interviewed and was going to work in one of these big firms, but somehow or another, he's convinced me that, you know, Jeff, this is an opportunity that really could take off. And I think the thing that I learned there that was really helpful, it was the power of kind of this mentorship and and being trained one-on-one. Obviously with small tax practice, there wasn't a huge training program. Right. So I was, uh, but what what it did allow is I was just really able to be in the hip pocket of my mentor. So, you know, I spent a year in the, every meeting, every follow-up, every discussion after the, the client interaction with this guy who had a PhD in tax and was an MBA and was just a really, really sound practitioner. And, and I learned, I think, significant amount in, in that first year than I could have learned in five or 10 years of of being in the business and, and spending a lot of time cold calling. And so I think that lesson's really stuck with me. And it's been something that I, I've really tried to focus on. How do you shorten the runway for somebody to get in the business? And I think the key to that is allowing them to be in the hip pocket of somebody who's really actually talking with clients and doing planning. And the more time they can do that, the, the better. So I know that the challenge for so many firms, and, and I'm kind of curious even to know how how this evolved for the firm that that you went in with, particularly for where the business was, you know, twenty odd years ago. I think the challenge for most firms is, him. Hey, I'm I'm, I'm going to bring in this person. I'm I'm trying to figure out like how do I, you know, how do I get ROI on this mm-hmm. as a as an advisor as a business owner, and and for a lot of firms I know, like the first thing they do when they look at this and say, how do I, how do I get ROI? It's like, well, I'm not sure, but I know the one thing that doesn't get me ROI is having the person in a meeting I was already going to be in and do all that stuff anyways. Right. So we tend to split new advisors, associate advisors, pair planners out like, okay, you do all this stuff, you know, in the shop, in the firm, in the office, so I can go out and see mm-hmm. more clients. And that's how I leverage myself up and grow the business. And, and I think there's some validity to that from the pure, like, separate tasks grow the business end, but but then that person's not in any meetings. They're back in the office while the lead advisor's out of meetings. So what what was it about this firm or the opportunity that they even just took the path of putting you in meetings from, it sounds like, more or less day one? Because that's even a struggle now that was really not common 20 years ago. 
Yeah, you're right. And I think part of the f- reality there is it was just almost out of necessity because I was 22 years old and knew nothing. So I think if he wanted me to learn from him and have the same principles and the same methodology and the same thought process and service the same way, then the only way I was really going to be able to see that is to spend quite a bit of time with them. And and I, I guess the irony is, I mean, like, was this a, basically a solo advisor, like a solo CPA? It wasn't. It was a 20-person okay. practice, but there was, you know, he was obviously the, the lead practitioner and there was four or five other CPAs and then significant amount of support okay. staff. And so from his end, like, I don't have time to train you, so just come along with me yeah. instead was the was the solution. I mean, it's an interesting point for particularly a lot of solo advisors of, of just saying like, hey, you, you can't figure out how to find the time to train your person. Like, just literally bring them along with you to everything and train them as you go. And at some point, you can start letting go of some tasks to them because they'll see you do it over and over and over again when they come with you at every client meeting. That's right. And I think, you know, the thing that's been neat for me to watch and maybe that that was kind of the way that this all was supposed to work so i could really learn that but i have two good friends that i think about a lot now fast forward 20 years that i look back and one worked for a big firm that you would know and he was going to take over a significant part of the the book of business from his senior advisor and so he's in that guy's office for the first nine or ten months before he goes to his office and i said Hey, have you seen a lot of his meetings? Because you're sitting literally, you know, five feet away. You can knock on the on the wall and he would hear you. This guy's been successful, been dealing with these same clients, been doing it the way that your company wants him to do it for 40 years. You're about ready to take over a significant part of his business. Surely you're spending a lot of time just watching him in action. I'm just a firm believer. People pick up quite a bit more than what you tell them in observation. And he said, gosh, you know, I've never really sat in any of these meetings, which just blew my mind. It was just, Hmm. I think, a short-sighted vision of the firm of saying you need to be making phone calls or you need to be studying or whatever the the philosophy was. And I just thought, man, what a wasted opportunity to, to have a guy who's been doing this for 40 years, who's wildly successful, and another young guy who wants to break in this business and is really interested in doing it. And yet he's not able, for whatever reason, to watch that in practice. And it just made me just made me frustrated that that was such a great opportunity. It would have been worthwhile for him to give up all his income or whatever additional value the firm thought he was going to pick up by meeting with clients and paid that to really invest in his long-term education. And I had a, another good friend of mine that was going to – worked for another firm here in Nashville – this guy had all the pedigree. His family sold a business for a bunch of money. He was really smart, worked for a company for 10 years or so. And so he was going into the, the business. And I called him one night, six or nine months into the deal, and asked him how he's doing. He said, gosh, I've been studying all day on 529 plans. I've got to finally have a prospect tomorrow that's willing to meet with me. He owns a business, has children, and so I need to learn about 529 plans. I said, gosh, is, is there not anybody there <laughs> that you could have asked in you know five or ten minutes, kind of got a debrief of hey, you know, here's there's a hundred different five twenty nines. Here's the one that the company recommends, and here's why, and here's how you explain it, and, and let him move on down the road. And he said, no, nobody here would help me with that. And you know, six or seven months later, he was out of the business and moved out of the city to go to law school. And it was just like that firm invested a lot of money in him, and he had put his whole life into this business for that year, and and failed 
because nobody was willing to kind of do that one-on-one. And I just think that's, I've seen it not work well. And So, so for you, when you went down this road, like what were you doing in that, in that first year? I mean, aside from show up in a meeting while, while, you know, PhD CPA guy nerds out and does what he does. Like what, what did you do? <laughs> yeah, probably not much of value, but I do remember going back and working on the follow-up and working on the projections and working on, and as a old professor, I would bring it to him and he would say, Jeff, don't let this hurt your feelings, but I'm going to pull out my red pen. And so, you know, he would just tear up the whole document I had written and make notes all over it and kind of like he was flunking me and, and hand it back. And so I'd go back to my office and rework it and study what he had written to the clients in the past and really learn, okay, what's he looking for? What's the voice that his mm-hmm. clients know from him and how can I emulate that? And so I'd bring it back and get a little better. And so, you know, over the course of those three or six or nine months of really keen observation, you just start to, you know, you could finish the sentence for him. And so I just focused on that first year or so of just gleaning every bit of of intel I could get on. This guy's been successful for 40 years. What is it that he says and does that the clients respond to? And how can I try to emulate that? And so is that still largely the approach that you take today? You know, as, as advisors come in, you you try to pair them up with an experienced advisor and just put them in as many meetings as you can? That's exactly it. I think we probably eight or 10 years ago formalized and made it a a much more thought out process of what this training looks like. But we now have it as a two-year kind of commitment from the advisor and the young mentee. And so that really the course of that first two years, the majority of the time, primarily that first year is really observation and sit in as many meetings as possible. And then and when there's downtime, working on follow-up and then coming back to the lead advisor to kind of share what he's done and see what, what recommendations and advice should have to happen. And then we found after that first year, you know, when you're really just pouring into them and spending a lot of time teaching, the second year, they're actually able to add some value. And they can do kind of pair planning work and do some client service work and then even do some prospecting and client meeting. And so really at the end of that second year, then I feel like that, that advisors had more time in the saddle, had more interaction with clients, real life planning experience than they may have had in 10 or 15 years of kind of the traditional wirehouse firm where it's a ton of prospecting and very little client interaction. So, so from the firm end, I guess I've got a few questions. One is just how do you think about the the investment of time, the implicit investment of dollars, like just you know we're wearing your business owner hat like mm-hmm. you know why well, so I, I guess even even clarifying like do these folks get paid a salary? Is there a base income when they come in and do this, or you're kind of literally like i'm I'm paying you a salary to show up and listen and not necessarily me doing a lot of the work yet. Yeah. And I think that what we've found is after a few months, maybe three, four, five, six months, they're actually able to do some work that is, you know, at adding value, but you're you're still spending a significant amount of time with them. So but that first three or four months, yeah, I think we're doing nothing but 
observation really exclusively and maybe some studying but the the next phase of it is really trying to evolve them to be able to do all of the support work that they will need to oversee once they're successful so the nice thing is all of the advisors in our practice they know what everything from a to z looks like because during that first two years they're yep. they're doing that from opening client accounts to all the the nonsense that you need to do in the back office and yep and then they, but they're they're also seeing a ton of meetings and they're seeing the thought process after the meeting about what's the advisor thinking and how does he interact with the paraplanner and what are the thoughts that need to go into that follow up and and so yeah that first year there's really a, an investment primarily into the the mentee and so we've got a salary that over the years has increased I think it's somewhere in the Thirty-five or forty thousand dollar year, that first year. So that young guy knows he's not going to get get rich, but he does know he's going to get trained really well. And then the second year, I think there's a a slight increase, and the company pays, if I remember right, about two thirds of that salary the first year, and then maybe it's fifty fifty or so the second year, and the advisor shares with it. And and yeah, in the early days, so we've been doing this nearly twenty years. In the early days, I was the one doing that every time so we'd have a new person come in and then after he was finally up and running we'd do it again and and eventually i kind of realized i couldn't do that anymore because it just tiring doing all that doing doing all the training or just the like effectively the turnover (laughs) because you're you're always turning your own team over you are and you're just you know starting with a young guy and teach him how to turn the computer on and how to log in and you know eventually that just became exhausting and, and counterproductive. And so the the beauty though is we continue to turn out young advisors that were able to be really successful and then they were able to bring in new people and this kind of process has been repeating. And so we actually just have kind of a new person in my direct team that's been here three or four months that I'm really excited about. But I haven't done that in the last seven, eight, nine years. So the rest of the advisors have been able to bring on the new people. And that's kind of shared the, the workload and there's younger advisors are a little bit more, have a little bit more energy. So they're able to bring in somebody and train them. And so it's worked well. And I guess it is worth noting, you know, you guys are based in essentially Nashville area, Nashville suburbs. So, you know, I know at least for some parts of the country, like 35 to $40,000 base salary would would be a tough number for them, but I, I I would imagine for Nashville. I mean, you're you're not living like a king, but if you're early twenties, you our our expectations are usually a little more <laughs> modest. So like, yeah, I'm getting paid, I can pay rent, and I'm learning. Cool, <laughs> cool. Yeah, we'll and I think later. we've we've had some guys that have said, "Gosh, I I would pay to go to MBA school to learn this." Yeah, I've jokingly told some of my colleagues that. Raymond James, I'd give up my income for a year to come watch them for a year to see what they're doing because they're really, really good at it. And I'd love to just see how they do it and how they operate. I just think that's how people improve radically is to watch other folks that are doing really well at it. And so, yeah, I think we've there's a, a select group of people that are willing to invest in themselves and the advisors are willing to invest in the younger person. And, and I think it's what you need, at least yeah. in my opinion. Otherwise, you just have – a practice that has a couple older folks in it, and it's just really hard to get young yeah. people to to become successful. So, so the classic challenge around this is, you know, essentially the the hire, train, and leave kind of phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's why I think a lot of the 
the large firms have cut back on their training programs over the years. So like, does this happen for your firm? You, you, you put them through their, their two years and they're like, yep, thanks. Going somewhere else. Now you can train the next, the next new guy or gal coming in. Do they, do they tend to stay? Do you worry about this phenomenon of you put all this effort into them in time where you at least not, not necessarily getting a huge ROI for the business just to have them leave? Yeah, you know what's interesting is I think that we have a high, extremely high probability of success. If a person comes here, they're they're obviously not quitting in that first two years right. because they are learning a ton. Yeah, you get here, you're getting a salary to learn. Like, because as long as you don't overspend your lifestyle and can live on the salary, like that's pretty good deal for most people in the first year or two. That's right. And then they, so you know, if we have a ninety or ninety five percent success rate, I guess if you were to compare that to the wirehouses that are 15 or 20%, I think it's money well spent for the, for the company. But the other thing it really does is it, it radically helps. And we can talk about this too, but it helps the senior advisors. That's where not early on, but the long-term vision is that the senior advisors are able to really grow because they have somebody that they've handpicked and hand-trained to be a perfect complement to them to help with their practice. And so that's the leverage if the young person. So after the two years, which we've had a you know, really high success rate of, of getting people up and trained and ready to go to kind of the next phase, then we, that training period used to be a, a little shorter and we felt like two years has become kind of a good formal training period. And then I think we've had kind of this option to say, okay, listen, after this, we've got a couple choices. One is that advisor could go on his own and the older advisor would segment book a business to him, which obviously makes a lot of sense because that advisor has been working on the team. He knows a lot of those clients. So he's able to start with a book of business already. So probably not unlike the Goodnight program at Jones or other firms where the senior advisor is able to segment and, and feed that new person who's going on their own. So we've had a lot of folks do that. Or we say, hey, listen, it's working really, really well. We've been, you know, casually dating for the last two years. So maybe we'll date for another three to five years. And so we have a lot of folks doing that where they kind of partner up for another three to five years. And we've seen some huge success out of that of, of advisors really growing well. And then at some point down the road, the advisors say, okay, let's either kind of get married up and and be partners for the long term or there's always an opportunity to kind of go on their own and segment a book of business to the to the mentee. So from the advisor's end, what's the what's the appeal to carve off a, like a segment of their clients to the to the junior advisor? I mean, do they treat this as like a partial sale of their client base? Do you do you like do some revenue sharing split? Hey, you know, you'll you make a little less because the other guy's going to split part of the revenue, but you don't have to see the clients anymore. So this will be good for you in the long run. Yeah. How, like, how do you get people on board with doing that? Because I know for a lot of firms, like, kind of like to hold our clients closer <laughs> and not, not, <laughs> not hand them off to someone. Well, I get it. In fact, I went through CEG probably 2011. And the very first weekend, all they talked about was the importance of segmentation and having a client base that you could service. And, and I think at the time I had you know, seven or eight, 900 clients. And so, Oh, holy cow. That's a really big number. Yeah, it was huge. And so I spent the whole year, unfortunately, I, I kind of feel like I 
I, I didn't learn a lot of what I could have CIG, CG because I, I basically got stuck in chapter one, verse one, which was the segmentation. <laughs> and to your point, it took me a whole year to really get the, the courage to segment, even though I, I understood why and I was trained from CG about the value of it. It was just scary. To your point, it's not common to want to do that. But thankfully, I, I was able to, to do that and, and was able to seed those clients to three young advisors who were just getting started, kind of going on their own. And they f- have flourished. And you've seen all the studies from there's a great Harvard business study. It's an old one from, I think, the 80s, but about the Goodnight program at Jones and how Mr. Goodnight never wanted to, or it was a, an accustomed Jones to the segment, but he segmented three different advisors and all three of those advisors became wildly successful and, and Mr. Goodnight became even more successful than he had ever been. And so it works. And so we we do have a fee sharing arrangement and I think it varies a little bit on the size of the account and whether it's fee based and commission and all that. But for all intents and purposes, you are just kind of segmenting and splitting some revenue for three to five years on those clients that you're seeding to the younger advisor. Okay. So how did you get through that process again? Because I'm I'm just I'm struck by, you know, built up to built up to seven seven hundred odd clients. That's uh a just a, a really big number, but but B, you know, if if you know, I know if you built that far, like you've got a, you've kind of got a, ment- a good mentality of just getting clients and achieving and building and growing. And so, you know, when 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 your mindset is growing that business and client base, it's really hard to let go of them because it kind of feels like you're going backward on on what you built. So how how did you how did you get through that? Well, unfortunately, it took a whole year of I think the coaches at CEG kind of saying, "Jeff, you're 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 failing the rest of this course because you're you haven't passed the first uh, section of the first class, which is the kind of segmentation." So, it was not an easy task. The fear creeps in, and the greed, and the uh, nobody else can do it better than me, and all those common characteristics I think we all suffer from. But, but the math is pretty evident when you really analyze it that we're all limited with time. Yep. And if 80% of your revenue is coming from 20% of your clients, it, it kind of makes sense to say, what am I doing with servicing all these people? And the fact of the matter is a younger advisor who has more capacity can serve those people better. And so, you know, it's interesting when you look back, I think in 2012 is when I segmented and 80 plus percent of my clients, but my production has gone up four times in from 2012 to 2019. So, and you know, one of the things that gave me confidence, is I said, well, CG is not in the business of like getting advisors to fail. Yeah. I remember having that, that conversation with myself a few times, like they're telling me to do this. I don't think it's in their business model for my production to drop precipitously forever if I do it. So I think going through that program really did help and it. And you know, that next year was flat because I think I spent too much time on the segmentation and kind of getting, my head wrapped around that, but kind of right-sizing the client base and has allowed me to to grow. So it's been worth it. So what did you come down to? I mean, was it a literally like 80-20 kind of formula? So I'm, I'm just going to come down to 20% of my clients. I'm going to go from 700 yeah. plus down to 150-ish or less. That's right. And, you know, then you still have the the 20, 30, 40, 50 of those folks that are small or family or friends that you just couldn't, from a math didn't make sense, but you just couldn't quite budge. So I, 
I'd still deal with, you know, as much as I can preach the value of this. And our team, fortunately, has been able to see it work with me. So we have a lot of the advisors doing the same thing over and over again. It's still a hard thing to do. And every time you look at those numbers, it's the same 80-20 rule applies. So it's a, something we should be consistently be doing. But those same fears and greeds and worries creep in even now. And so how did you actually do this kind of trade-off? Like just literally handing off 500-odd clients is kind of a, a thing unto itself. Was it just I'm going to go out to meetings with all these different clients. Just say, hey, you know, meet Johnny. Johnny's going to be working with you going <laughs> forward. You won't, you won't see me anymore. But you know, trust me, Johnny's going to take good care of you. And, and like that's that because I know some firms like transitioning clients is a is a multi meeting process over time of of trying to get clients comfortable with the new advisor. But you can't really do that when you're handing off like 500 of them. <laughs> It's going to be like a five-year transition. (laughs) That's right. And I think I started – that was part of the reason why it took me so long is I really wanted to go that route. You know, I was – had grown this business from scratch and so I really felt like I needed to serve these people and I had a a loyalty and obligation and – but it was such a large number that everybody realized that wasn't going to be practical. And so, you know, the benefit was though, Michael, I had all these guys that I was going to transition them to that had – been working in my hip pocket that knew exactly the way that I thought to talk the way I talked, that we're going to care for these people the way that I want them cared for, that we're going to do the exact same planning and all the things that you would want because we had, we had been working together, kind of going back to the original deal of they were trained and groomed the same way I wanted things to go. So, so what was the, what was like the training timing and process of this? You, you had, you already been, bringing in some younger advisors to grow anyways. And then CEG basically convinced you like, Jeff, you really got to hand off a whole bunch of your clients to these, to these newer advisors in your office. Or did it come from the other end of you got your 700 clients, but you're, but you're drowning in them. CEG says you got to segment and hand them off. And then you have to go out and find advisors, hire them, train them, put them through your two year process. And then finally you can start handing them off. What was the sequence of this, how you actually made these transitions? Yeah. Fortunately, we had been hiring, you know, ever since I started the firm, we've done this kind of hire, train, and spawn off into their own practice within the company. And so at that time, we probably had 20 advisors. And so those advisors were then bringing in young mentees. And so we had a stable of four really good, sharp young guys that I was able to introduce to those clients and let them know that I was moving on and had responsibilities with the company and managing the firm and all that thing. And so, but I had worked with them and and, and had trust that they were going to serve them well. And you know, the irony is, I think if we were able to go back, one, none of the clients cared. I thought that they would just die without working with Jeff and that they're just, you know, their, their world wouldn't continue. I think it's my feelings were a little hurt after I kind of finally bought in and did it, <laughs> and the client was like, "Oh, okay." You're like, I was kind of hoping to be a little more upset. <laughs> yeah, I mean, didn't I matter a little more than that? But it's kind of like, well, yeah, Jeff's great, but we're excited to work with the guys that he's introduced us to, and yeah, and you know, and then statistically, I think probably over ninety eight percent of those clients are still with the firm 
gosh, all these six, seven years later. Well, and I, and I mean, I've I've seen a version of this in our firm over the years is as we went through some transitions with founding partners that that handed off clients to to next generation advisors that mm-hmm. I mean I think there's this phenomenon that comes particularly for the bottom half of your of your client base where you know the truth at the end of the day is, is like they're, they're probably not that profitable for the firm usually they know they're not necessarily that profitable for the firm. They have some sense that they're probably lo- below your average client. You know, we sometimes, I think, even unwittingly, subconsciously, kind of reflect that, and you know how anxious we are or are not to take the next meeting with them or or do the next phone call with them, and you know we deflect them a little more because we know it's probably not the best use of time to mm-hmm. to do a long meeting with them, and and I think there's this effect that happens when you do the handoff if if you set the person up for success right like you're gonna love working with jenny she's fantastic she's you know energetic and really sharp and right like you 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 put that you put that successor advisor on a pedestal but i think part of what comes from the client's end is oh so i finally don't have to work with jeff who i probably wasn't really going to care about me that much anyways. And I work with Sally, who apparently I'm a really good client for Sally. And like (laughs) Sally's going to serve me enthusiastically. And Jeff, I always sort of felt guilty calling him and asking for a meeting because I know I'm a really small client for Jeff. Like I I think there is an effect like that, that, that plays out. I feel like sometimes we, we don't always give clients enough credit for being smart human beings who've kind of figured out what the dynamic is and that, they might even just get better service when they get handed off to someone else who actually really wants to serve them enthusiastically. You know, as I say a lot, like your C client is always someone else's A client, pretty much up and down the spectrum. Yeah. And so, you know, let let them be served by someone who's for whom they are an A client. And even the clients often figure that out pretty quickly and actually get quite comfortable with the shift. I think you're exactly right. And I think we increase our own importance. And the fact that matters, the clients at the end of the day just want to be sure that somebody is really concerned and, and interested in doing what's right for them. And they figure if a younger person has more capacity, more energy, and that, that works great, they're happy to do it. If we trust them, that's a great fit. And, you know, what's really neat is to see some of these clients who are are just thriving with these advisors that I never was able to really get that type of traction with. It's it's just it truly is fascinating to see some folks that are now wonderful would be A clients for me, but they're they're double A clients for some of these advisors right. that that I transitioned to and 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 they're just they're deeper relationships you wouldn't have had the time or capacity to develop, but they did. Yep. For some reason or another it's just been a real win. And so at the end of the day, that's what, that's all that you're really looking for is, you know, my clients are able to be served well, we're growing. And yet these other, other advisors are really successful and their clients are happy. And I think if we could get every advisor in America, who's been doing this for a while to bring on a young person and train them for a while, mentor them, and then, and then segment, I think the advisors would grow their production rapidly. Even advisors have been doing it 20, 30, 40 years. And it just really spawns a cool opportunity for the young guy too. I, I would think especially for 
the advisors that have been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years to just, yeah. you know, we, we, if you're a survivor to survive that long in the first place, you almost inevitably end up with a pretty sizable book of clients, many of whom you probably realistically haven't called on in quite a while and not terribly frequently because there's just only so much time and we all naturally gravitate towards doing more meetings with our subset of top clients. And so, you know, the, the, the rest of that book often ends out being somewhat or very heavily underserved anyways. So it really, it, it does, I think, become a, at the least a drag on the advisor to still have to worry about those clients, even if they're not doing a lot for them. And, and sometimes an outright missed opportunity that another advisor for whom they were a good client might've turned it into an even better client. Absolutely. And I see it time and time again. And it, you know, it's, it's just re encourage, it really encourages you when you see it happen time and time again, because you always wonder, well, gosh, I do the right thing. And is he going to be able to serve him really well? And should I just kept them? And they weren't that challenging and I could handle the work and, you know, you start to second guess yourself a little bit, but I would, as you know, all the studies and all the consultants would say, I, I'm, I can't believe we're still talking about this. Let's move on. This was a no brainer. So it's easier said than done. I, I totally yeah. get that. And I do have to just ask again, like, do you, do you get worried? You're going to, you know, segment clients and hand them off to another advisor. And then a few years they leave and take the clients and you just, you just made your business smaller. Is, do you just not worry about that? Like, how do you, how do you handle that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting is we haven't had any, we haven't had that happen. We've got a lot of folks. I think we have 34, 35 advisors now and, and we haven't had one leave where we kind of groomed them this way. And so it, yeah, I'm sure it can happen and something, but, but I think people really understand that they were fortunate to hit a, really home run to kind of be in that mentorship program and to really right. hit success quickly, more quickly than I guess they would otherwise. And so there seems to be a sense of gratitude about that. And yeah, say so like, lo and behold, when you, when you serve them really well and help them build their businesses, a bunch of them tend to just actually stay because it's going well. <laughs> That's right. And, and so where do you find these new advisors that come in and will take their you know, thirty-five dollars to $40,000 teach me, I just want to show up and, and learn role. Like I, I get it. I'm sure there are a few students or, or new entrants to the profession who are listening to this and saying like, my, you know, my God, I really would work for free in a firm that would just let me do this. So if you'll pay me to show up and just sit in all the client meetings, like I'll move to Nashville now. So we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll put your website in the show notes for anybody <laughs> who wants to go find a, find a job opportunity in Nashville. But a lot of firms I know still struggle to find, to find good, good talent, good young talent. And, and, you know, right or wrong, I think there's a mentality out there that millennials coming in today want a lot of stuff and want it fast and may not be patient to sit out a, a dollars to $40,000 salary for a year or two. So w where are you finding people that will come in and take this role and then, by goodness, actually turn into being good advisors <laughs> and and don't come in and just flake out because it turns out they're not a good fit? Yeah. Well, one interesting piece of my story is I had that great mentor I mentioned, but I really kind of got stuck in a situation where I thought the third year we had an agreement where we were going to split the 
profits of the investment business. So the you know, tax business has been in business forever, but I started the investment business. And so that third year, we were going to split the profits, and we did really well, all things considered, as a 25-year-old and three years in the business. And and at the end of the year, I kind of got the sense that we weren't going to kind of stick to that agreement. And and so, <laughs> in fact, I think there was a really nice sports car kind of bought, and I said, well, that that's just going to come out of your part, right? Because I didn't, I didn't buy a sports car and, and thought that would be too complex, I guess, to figure out. And I said, well, this isn't a county practice. I think we can do the math and yeah, and figure figure it out. But so that didn't work well, obviously. And, and I, that's when I realized how hard it is for even really good people, but small business owners to, to kind of stick to the plan and to really yeah. segment and transition and delegate and all those important things that I think big companies are really good at scaling and doing. So my background is I, w- I was the young guy where I felt like things weren't – what was promised wasn't really quite delivered. Right. So I think I've been sensitive to what it's like for these young folks to come in and say, you know, I, w- I want to be sure – and I see this from time to time where somebody's worked in kind of that – you know, that carrots dangled. And after a while, that person loses faith and, and has to go on and do something else. So maybe I'm a little bit more urgent to be sure that that person is successful pretty quickly and really successful. And so that's why we're just constantly trying to figure out how do we shorten that runway and get this person up to a good level of production. Because the blessing in this business is once you're going, as you know, the business is, if you're continuing to grow, is self-sustaining and it's just scalable and it's beautiful. And so you're just trying to figure out how do you how do you shorten that runway from it taking you know ten or fifteen years for somebody to do well to making it three or four or five. But to get back to your question of finding the folks, so we're you know you do have to find the right people. It's tough to if a kid's getting out of school and has gone MBA and is, is has a lot of his buddies are getting salaries at one hundred one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. That's not going to be the kind of guy that we could partner with. But we do have a guy that went to Vandy Law School. He's brilliant, hardworking, but he realized he didn't want to be a corporate lawyer and wanted to be in the investment planning business and the opportunity to get paid, albeit not a lot, to really get trained well in this business was something that he was super excited about. And it's worked great. So he, he was he was willing to the proverbial take a big step back to take two big steps forward in the future. That's right. Yeah. And so it does require, I think something we've learned over the years is it's hard to make this work with the guy who's 33, been in another industry, has four mm-hmm. kids at private school and has been making two or three, four hundred thousand dollars a year, it, but wants to be in the business. This is, this. that's a real tough, tough thing to make work. So interesting because the math doesn't Math just doesn't work because their, you know, their family overhead by that stage of life and career just ain't going to work to take this entry level role. So you're, so I guess you're, you're disproportionately hiring folks that are in their in their twenties, where ho- hopefully lifestyle hasn't crept too much higher yet from yep. living cheap coming out of college, and so it's just more affordable for them to say like, Hey, I'll pay you to learn. Sounds great. If you weren't having an expensive lifestyle in the first place and, and you don't have right. kids and mortgage and all those other obligations. That's it. And so your point earlier about this, how does this work from a business perspective? It does require that you are limited to finding, you, know, you can't make this work if it's two years of a training program with a 40 year old or 50 year old. So it does require right. 
that younger person who so we we a lot of us in this business work for southwestern which is an old book publishing company where kids sell books door to door 80 hours a week so that's a very hardcore tough business to but you grind it out and you learn a lot and and so mm-hmm. we have probably half of the guys in our team or so worked at southwestern so in, bookstore to door back in the day and so those guys are really good entrepreneurs and understand people and understand hard work oh, and, and then the other half are probably similar they didn't work for southwestern but they have kind of that similar mindset of they're willing to put in the work and the effort and they really are investing kind of in the long term and now that we've been doing this nearly 20 years we've able to show a much more consistent kind of historical track record of how well it actually does work. And we just are having an extremely high success rate and the its senior advisors growth rate is much higher, I think, than the average in the industry because they're having this partner that they're able to really, you know, two heads are better than one and, and one plus one can be three if you're all on the same page. And so, yeah, it's been, I think that part's been a really fun thing for us to, to watch. Well, and, and as you said, like the one of the big challenges that crops up for advisors who are looking at opportunities like this is is figuring out that question. You know, are, are they going to follow through on the promise when the time comes? You know, if I if I do my few years and then I want to you know take over a segment of the clients, are they actually going to hand off the clients and do it? And having a a twenty year track record of like, yep, we actually do it. Like here's. <laughs> Here's three or five or ten other advisors who've done this exact path and, and and it worked out. Gives the next person coming in a whole lot more confidence of, you know, why do I pick, why do I pick Jeff's firm to work at, and not someone else's? Like because they've actually done this on a consistent, reproducible basis, and that becomes part of the the hiring appeal. It does, and I think just while you're hitting that, I think even my experience was good people. So this is a little bit of a public service announcement is I think left to our own devices, if we're not careful, that's a really hard thing to do sometimes is to kind of follow through. And to, even if you have good intentions, it's just, it gets a little sticky and it's can be a little stressful and emotions can run high when you're talking about pay and ownership and segmentation. Well, and I just find there's this phenomenon. Like I, I almost feel like it's, it's, <laughs> it's almost inevitably set up to be, stressful when you get there for, for the senior advisor, because I find in general, like w- one of two things happens, you know, it, it doesn't go very well, in which <laughs> case you haven't had much growth. And if you haven't had much growth now carving out a, a segment of your clients is now as the senior advisor, it's like, you got to go one step backwards and hang off a bunch of your clients so that you can go two steps forward. But this doesn't feel like a growth thing for you now. It literally feels like a, I'm going to lose something and hope I make it back. And, you know, I think the natural human instinct at that point is, or I cannot hand off a segment of my clients yep, and I don't have to go backwards. So if, if they're not growing, it hurts because it feels like you're losing something. And then if you are growing, like, well, crap, this is working and I'm making a lot more money. Like I kind of like to enjoy it now. Right. So as you're, as your CPA colleague did, like, you know, I was going to do that partnership thing, but instead I'm going to buy this car that I really wanted to buy for a long time because, <laughs> you know, it's going so well and I'm making good money and, and I put all in all this work and just, you know, not even have like an entitled attitude, but just it's very easy to feel like I've put in this work and it's grown. I'm entitled to enjoy some of this money. I'm going to do something with it. And so, you know, if it doesn't go well, 
you feel like you're losing something. If it's going really well, you feel like you're still losing something compared to what you would have had. I feel like there's almost this, you have to hit this Goldilocks point in the middle. <laughs> it's going well enough. You still want half the clients, but not too well that you just kind of want to keep the extra growth. And it, it usually doesn't work out perfectly in the middle. So most advisors, I think, end out with that moment of, of truth of sitting down to say like, okay, do I really actually want to follow through on this now that it's time? Like even with the best of intentions, but to say, hey, I grew more or less than I expected. Do I really still want to do this trade-off? Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. And that's real and it happens every day. And I think one of my roles is to kind of create the infrastructure in which we can keep everybody moving down to the right path. And it never goes as quickly as the, you know, the young person wants. And But ultimately you get to that point and we can kind of keep everybody together and we so we have a a team that kind of help with these transitions and say okay we're gonna we're gonna kind of walk together with this so at the end of this period everybody's happy and it's worked really well and and you know there's it kind of keeps everybody moving on the same path so that's a very important part we spend a lot of time and energy just putting things on the calendar if we're going to get together and talk about this and we're going to do it again in a couple weeks and and I just know most of us, particularly self-employed folks, it's just easier not to have that conversation. And so the young guys sitting there a year or two or five down the road wondering what in the world ever happened to the the, the promise when they were hired. Oh, interesting. So, so in essence, part of what you do as a as a broader firm of this is just basically forcing the conversation. Like, hey, in case you forgot, your associate advisor's coming up on the two-year marks. So you're supposed to have that conversation now. So we're going to put a meeting on the calendar in three weeks and then we're going to yep. start this conversation. So, you know, no offense, but you, you can't really dodge it because we're just going to put it on your calendar. Yeah. And even then with the, we have some guys that are retiring and, you know, they, they know that they're going to transition to the younger person, but it's kind of working out those details. And, you know, all of us are good at procrastination if it's something that makes us a little uncomfortable. And so I think what's been helpful is just having kind of the corporate family to, to kind of be there to say, hey, we, we want this to work well for everybody. This is something that, you know, each of the advisors agree is good. Let's just kind of figure out the the details and and kind of iron out any of the the issues. And and it doesn't have to rise to that level of emotion that I think a small practice. My dad was a small town attorney, and so I saw that happen there. I've experienced it myself in a small CPA practice. I think it's just normal for humans to get all antsy when they're talking about selling their business or transition their business or, and so I think we're just trying to figure out a way to kind of take the emotion out of it a little bit. So, so talk to us more about the firm overall, you know, if you kind of mentioned just as we've gone, like doing this for almost 20 years, 35 advisors under the umbrella, which is a, a pretty big number. So can you, you just paint a picture for us overall of, the, the firm and the metrics of the business? Yeah. So we uh, started a, a one-man band in 2002. So that was, uh, I guess we're 17 and a half years in. And so we partnered with Raymond James really out of the gate. So I moved to Nashville after the, the tax experience didn't work out as well. And so okay. started from a flat rock and really with the vision that I would try to grow a practice, but more aligned to recruiting advisors. That was kind of the objective I thought I would want to go down. And 
and probably have those those guys in more remote offices. But ended up partnering early on with Dave Ramsey for the referral. Oh, the uh, endorsed local provider ELP program. Although yeah, I that's right. Call it that anymore now. It's it's Smartvester or something. That's right. But in the early days, it was the ELP program, and so that was something I hadn't planned on. But it was really just a huge blessing for me because. I had a lot of time and no clients. Yep. <laughs> so when you're starting to practice, that's all? actually, right. yep. you know, getting a lot of a volume is a great thing. And so I was able to really serve those referrals really, really well because I had plenty of time. And I had kind of that. So that was what was neat is that background I had from tax practice and kind of growing and starting a, a firm. I, I understood that. And so, and kind of doing it in a way that was, kind of a comprehensive planning focus, I think was something I learned in the tax practice. So that was my approach. And so that was maybe a little different than some of the competition. And and so really pretty quickly, we had a lot of traction with Dave's group. And so they asked if we would take over another market. And then we asked if we could take over another market. And so over those first five or six or seven years, I think we probably had, gosh, eight or 10 or 15 markets that we were the ELP for. And so because of that, I really had to fine tune this recruiting and training and mentoring process because the volume of clients was growing faster than I could do my myself. And so looking back, that was really how all this kind of worked together is that I needed to have somebody that could help. And so I hired a person, he was able to get up and running relatively quickly. And then we were able to do that again and again. So nonetheless, we were able to multiply. And so fast forward now, I think we have nine offices. We have about 105 folks. I think we have three and a half billion or so of AUM and somewhere around 30 million of revenue. Fascinating. And and so I got so many questions here. So let me let me <laughs> let me let me step back for a moment to to Dave Ramsey's ELP program, which I think was an endorsed local professional endorsed local provider provider yeah so so how did this program work exactly like w- what did you get what did you do what did you have to pay to be to be in it because i think you know a lot of people would like uh oh hey yeah we just did this marketing program now we have three billion dollars like wait what how did that happen <laughs> we talk about that again <laughs> yeah so i think there's a couple key occurrences over this kind of timeline. And so the first one was really partnering with Dave and just getting some volume, I think was really key. So I first started out doing the ELP market in Franklin, which is a little suburb just south of Nashville. And that was, I can remember it like it was yesterday, was $2,000 a month. Okay. So you you paid a flat fee, just $2,000 a month to be in the program, regardless of whether you got one lead or a hundred. Obviously, if you didn't get any, you were going to drop the program, but like Saying just two thousand though. Well, yeah, uh, understood. Was, when you're, yes, when you're getting going. And, <laughs> I was twenty six oh and I was getting started. I was like, golly, this yeah. is. Can I scratch it together? But fortunately, we were able to do that. Yeah. So I think probably on average that was re- getting somewhere in the ballpark of thirty referrals or so a month of people that at least I got at least a warm body or name and a, okay, an email or phone number. And did you have a sense like how? How many of those would typically convert? Was that like 30 referrals, but you were still only lucky to get one or 30 referrals? And like, yeah, we'd really get three, five plus clients a month. 
yeah, I think I was able to get a lot of now, now where I am today, there wouldn't have been clients that, you know, I could take on now. So that's kind of how this evolution, I think of right. the segmentation really, you know, it'd probably be akin to somebody that started at Jones knocking on doors. Right. So you, you pay for the doors to knock you like, <laughs> that's right. And, you know, eventually the, then you have to figure out, okay, well, I've gosh, I've got a lot of clients here and, and we have to learn how to segment, but yeah, I would suspect it was probably 10 or 12 out of those 30 clients or 30 prospects would become clients. And, um, you know, majority of them are small, but that's a big number. But as you said, like small, meaning, I mean, very small, it was the straight down to like, well, I'm thinking back then, like I opened my $2,000 annual, yeah. annual IRA contribution, IRA. those, yeah. those kinds of, those kinds of deals. We're not necessarily talking about like an ongoing flow of six figure investment accounts. No, but there would you know, be a, quite a few that would were nice clients. And, you know, when I look back over the course of, we've been doing that for seven, nearly 17 years now, we have a lot of really, really significant clients that are huge fans of Dave's and that trusted us because we partnered with, with Ramsey. And so that's been a, a monumental part of our success. And so, but I, I try to help friends of mine now that want to get in the program. You, you have to understand that you need, if you're already in the business and successful, you're obviously going to have to have a young partner that can help you manage the the flow. Because you got to handle the lead flow. You got to answer them and honor them. And can you even, can you have a minimum and be in the program? Like does, you know, do, do the Dave folks get upset if they hand you leads and then you turn them away because you had minimums that they don't meet? Yeah, you know, really, as long as I've done it, we've always had folks that have been able to service all of them from from A to Z, and so I think that's been which again is part of the segmentation. Like, you won't get Jeff for <laughs> depending on on what you are when you call, but you know, you will get someone at the firm who is ready to take that's right. valued client. Yeah, that's exactly it, and so that's worked, you know, just just really well, and. So we kind of got that process down and then So e- leads would come by call by e- by email. Um I'm just like thinking yeah, email. the timing of 2002 like do we get these by email? <laughs> they didn't fax them to you, right? No, uh, it was uh, it's funny because just another thing about human nature is out of all those leads where the people would get my info and I would get their info I can't think of probably one or two people that actually call me. So keep in mind, these are people that are going on the site looking for help. And it just shows you how. I still expect you're going to call them back. <laughs> yeah. Call reluctancy is something real, even for, for clients. Oh. But it was able, you know, I was able to get their email and phone number and maybe a, what, what they were trying to accomplish a, a little blurb about that. And so, but then we were able to just, in all seriousness, really do a good job of servicing those people because we didn't have that wasn't distracted with other clients. And so then Dave went on a big station in Dallas back. So this was probably in 05 or 06 and needed some good investment folks. And we had developed a great relationship. And so we opened an office in Dallas and moved several of our advisors here to there. And now that's grown. And I think we have. 12 or 13 advisors in oh, North Dallas. And and so with Dave's program, just like they carve up, it sounds like saying they carve up markets. So like for $2,000 a month, you get you know all the leads in this zip code or this group of zip codes and 
and that's your territory. And if you want another territory, another group of zip codes, you you pay another two thousand dollars a month for those. Was like was that the structure to it? Yeah, that's exactly it. And and you get to be exclusive in those zones, or is it still like it's always a couple other advisors, and you got to call them back fast, or someone else gets them first? Yeah, so I think probably two or three years ago, the program went through some serious changes, and so now back then you were exclusive, uh, or at least based on a particular market, but now you are kind of advertising along with other folks. And so I think it varies depending on the city and the size, but there, you might be one of five or six or seven or eight or 10 people in that market that are in the program. Okay. And did the, did the pricing change as well? Like, do you, is it less expensive for you now because you're, you're getting split amongst others or is it more expensive because it's, there's been a lot of inflation in the in the cost. Yeah, how does how does I don't it work know. Actually, today? I've kind of gotten out of the weeds on the details of it now, but I think that the probably the price per lead is down, but the volume is up significantly. But also the the fact that they're having other folks call them is is changed. So oh, interesting. So so volume still up because just Dave Ramsey's platform continues to grow and have more reach. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That's that's interesting, and I'm just curious, like. For people, I'm sure who are listening or wondering, just what does an average prospect look like when it comes through that that program? I mean, I get it; you're gonna you're gonna run the gamut, but like, are we doing a lot of five thousand dollar IRAs? Are we doing like a bunch of fifty thousand dollar accounts? Are we doing like hundreds of thousands of dollar accounts? Do you get bunch that are just I need you know? debt help and other things and there's no investment opportunities at all and you're charging them for plans like what is the what is the range of the typical opportunity look like for clients yeah i think it's probably all across the map but you have and i'm just broad brushing here so no statistical data to back this up but you probably have half or so who really need to focus on debt and and they're folks that are early into the program and of paying off debt and building wealth and so we try to encourage them to stay on the program and to to continue paying off debt. There's probably another 20, 30% of them that are ready to invest some amount. So that's funding IRAs potentially or have a rollover of you know, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars from an old four hundred one K plan. And then there's, you know, maybe another ten or twenty percent of people that have half a million, million, five million, ten million, fifty million dollars to to invest and and so it really is the whole gamut. But for us, it's just been it's been an absolute interest blessing for us to have that whole that flow. Yep, and it's allowed us to scale and and it continues to just be a like a flat fee structure for market. They don't do you know, revenue sharing obligations the way that some platforms out there do. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Just a, I think it's just a monthly fee still interesting and so i've 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 got to ask you from broad consumer perspective you know dave ramsey has a a huge platform a huge reach right that's why they can have this program in lots of different markets and and you <laughs> yeah. know, literally charge for lead flow and be able to you know sell sell those opportunities to multiple advisors at once you know within the industry i know dave has a shall we say somewhat controversial reputation <laughs> Like within advisor world itself, around sure. recommendations he makes, and you know the infamous do you know growing stocks at twelve percent compounding discussions that crop up every few years. So, 
how do you like, how do you look and think about this wearing your advisor hat? Like are our advisor industry criticisms of Dave Ramsey overblown? Does it just not bother you? Do you look at it a different way? Like how do you, how do you think about sort of Dave Ramsey versus advisor industry? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was just flying back from vacation the other day. I was out of the country and I was reading the news at four in the morning because I couldn't sleep and read this great article about this young couple that paid off $150,000. I think it was on Fox Business. And I'm kind of reading how they do it. And they said that they just got on Dave Ramsey's bandwagon and and they've paid off all this money and now they're investing all this. And it was just a, just a wonderful article about yep. the impact that Dave's principles have had. And it just motivated this couple to just change their whole lives. And, and so, you know, I, I've seen that scenario play out literally thousands of times mm. with people that I've, I've worked with or know. And so to be honest with you, I don't get too into the details of, of the, of the controversy about the rates of return or asset allocation. I, I think the majority, if not all of the folks that, that we work with, they love the, idea of of long-term investing and you know borrowing a bunch of money and credit cards and whatnot's dumb i actually just met with a person today that had that sold a half of their business for 30 million dollars and they had a mortgage and so you know that's not the end of the end of the world and we you know that would probably be contrary to what dave would talk about but you know you you obviously have people that come from a wide range of backgrounds that have different yeah philosophies but i would say that our general philosophy and i think actually this all comes back even to you know the, the principles i learned as a young guy with the cpa practices a lot of the principles dave talks about are ones that i was kind of grew up with and was trained with in the mm-hmm. business of uh you know i had my accountant mentor would tell people that even though he understood obviously the tax tax reduction and of mortgages and all that he would have all these wildly successful people encourage them to pay off their debt and and just felt like that that was something that was was good for his clientele when they could do that. And so I think I learned at an early age that some of those principles were mm. very valuable and and I could agree with. And so, yeah, I think it's it's been a wonderful set of folks to work with because they they are not looking to get rich quick. They understand that the market goes up and down and they want to – have somebody to help shepherd him through this process. So very cool. Very cool. So, so in terms of the firm overall, you mentioned kind of almost three and a half billion of assets under management, 105 team members, 35 advisors, you know, the, this and, and the structure around it. So is this a, it was like, how does this structure under Ray J itself? Like, are you, technically a super OSJ over a whole bunch of branches? Are these all like literally employee advisors of of your firm and and everything conduits through your firm? Like how does this actually work structurally? Yeah. So we are all employees underneath the, this company of Southwestern Investments. So okay. we've been partnered with RJ, I said, since the beginning, we started an RA probably five years ago or so. We've had maybe one or two circumstances where we've made acquisitions and the older advisor, we've done kind of a 1099 relationship. So that's something that we've done from time to time as we're kind of acquiring a, a practice or two. But the majority of us are all W-2 employees of the of the firm. 
And so equity is is owned by you, is multiple advisors? How does that work? Yeah, the majority of all of the advisors. So we have an equity plan based on production. And once an advisor hits a pretty meaning, a pretty small level, a minimal level of production, then they have the opportunity to kind of buy into the to the equity plan of the firm. And so, yeah, I pr- we probably have, gosh, 30 or so of the advisors that are, that are participating in the equity of the company. Interesting. And, and how do you figure out like how to value that? How do they afford it? Do they buy in? Like, how does the, how does that structurally work? Yeah. So we uh, do evaluation each year and then we actually have, a plan where they're able to buy in over 10 year period, evergreen half of the shares. And so they buy half of those shares over 10 years. And then when they retire, when we all retire, then we will purchase the other half through an evergreen purchase and, and we'll have paid off half of it. So it's a program that we've kind of borrowed from other firms and it's, and it's been, it's worked really, really well. So our goal is, for as many of the share, the advisors to be shareholders is just seems to be another part of that plan where it's only employees that own the stock. And so when they retire, we'll all buy it back. So only people that are responsible for the growth of the company now will enjoy the appreciation of the, of the stock. So, so I just want to make sure So they buy half their shares up front, which essentially means like you own them, you're going to pay them off over time, but like, you are now an owner. You have the equity stake. You you participate in appreciation. You participate in in profit distributions and such. So, how does the other half work? Is this like a phantom thing? You'll get the growth yeah. between now and then, but not the distributions along the way. So you're incentivized to stick around. Like that's it. Like, so it's like a phantom equity thing. A phantom equity. Yeah. That really they own the distributions actually and the appreciation, but they just don't have to pay for that until. Until retirement. Oh, so it's it's functionally like an option, so you don't have to exercise it until you retire. At which point, you basically buy your shares and sell them back, and and get your appreciation. Except they do participate in the profit distributions along the way. That's right. And so they really, it's just a way to help with the cash flow of the purchase. So that way, they're able. Everybody, we you know, the whole goal was we wanted everybody, even the younger advisors that were getting going, to be able to afford the equity because now they're essentially getting they're getting profit distributions on 100% of the shares but they're only paying for 50% of the shares up front and they're financing those over 10 years so the the cash flow gets pretty manageable at this point that's it yeah okay interesting structure out of curiosity just what's the what's the entity structure for making that work is this like a really complex llc operating agreement <laughs> that carves these things up it is fairly complex, but it's. I think it's working well because really it's a way – I really just wanted everybody from the beginning. It's just been a philosophy of ours that everybody owns the business. And so I think it's critical. We've, you, you evaluate this over time and say, gosh, is that the right way to do it or should we have a select group of shareholders own it? But I, th- I think part of our success – and I've seen some other firms here in town that have – really scaled nicely. And I wonder, well, gosh, what are they doing right? And, and it's funny, not all of them, but majority of them have similar equity ownership where people even in, you know, on the ground floor that are just getting started have the ability to 
to participate if the if the company does well. And I I think that's been one of the keys to watching us grow over the last 17 years or so is that everybody can participate. And it also means everybody's engaged and involved in the success of the company. And and, and I guess the, the caveat from your end is, and you always got to keep enough cash around to buy out to buy out shareholders if they if they leave or or retire with with the caveat I'm assuming you get to finance it on the buyback as well so you you don't get liquidity squeezed or do you do you pay them off entirely when they bought when they sell back No and we have the option to you know obviously buy it back but we are motivated to do that but we can do that with cash reserves plus you're constantly having as long as you're growing you're consistently having new people that are buying in and so it's able to cash flow pretty well oh because in practice as long as you're growing even when someone exits just like well i know where the shares are going to come from for the next person coming in like that's right just just gonna just gonna rotate them down yeah and i think that's that just maintains kind of this passion for growth right it doesn't work if we are just kind of maintaining and it's it's kind of an interesting thing because I see a lot of really successful advisors, but and this is kind of the burden maybe that I'm always fighting myself is how do I just never allow us to just maintain? Because I think and you know that people talk about if you're not growing, you're dying. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, I just know that we we have a methodology and a philosophy that we all want to grow. We've been fortunate to really have a good business. And so it'd be silly if next year, the year after the year after we're not, we're not building and scaling. And so I think that keeps a philosophy that all of us, we've got to maintain. And so there's hiccups with that with, we're dealing now with space issues and, you know, those are, those are hassles that you have (laughs) if you're growing, but I, we just are committed to growth. And so I think that that keeps us energized to try to say, okay, well, we've got to continue to have a successful recruiting program. We've got to have a successful training program. We have to have a successful mentorship program. We have to be sure that the senior advisors are thriving and doing well and want to stay and are happy. And so, but if you can do all that, then the cool thing is everybody wins and the business is scaling and, and I'm, Interesting. I'm hopeful where it'll be in five or 10 years. Yeah. And and as advisors buy in, like, how do you determine how much they get to to buy in? Because you know, I mean, you're at a you're at a size where you know you could you could move a lot of equity around or a relatively small percentage, and like all the numbers are actually kind of big when you're when you're moving off of a base of thirty million of revenue. So how do you how do you set or figure out how much advisors are are allowed or get the opportunity to buy in, in the first place? Yeah, so we just created a scale that had a X number of shares at each profit level based on each dollar of production. And so once you've hit a level of production, there's a grid that shows how many shares you're able to acquire at that level of production. And then if you grow the next year, you can acquire the shares above that threshold. Oh, okay. So I like, I don't. So if I if I stop growing and I plateau, I I don't get to keep buying more more shares. I got I got what I bought, Not, but I don't I don't I don't get a I don't get more access to the pie unless I literally make the pie bigger by outgrowing my old threshold. That's right. Interesting. Like who sets this up? Was this a a thing you guys just kind of figured out on your own? Is this a consulting firm that structured it? Is this like an internal thing that that Raymond James does? No, there's a, a consulting firm and has helped kind of this 
family of companies for 25, 30, 40 years probably with this similar structure. So we've just emulated that. Can I ask who they who they are? Like I'm, I just, I think there's probably other advisors that would like to <laughs> give them a call. Second generation capital is the group that has kind of overseen this for probably the last okay. 25, 30 years. Okay. They're a local Nashville group. All right. Very cool. So for folks that are listening, this is episode 147. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 147, we'll have a some links out there to the consulting firm if you want to try creating a structure like this. It's a very interesting structure. I can certainly see just the the fundamental alignment that you get of you know, you want to be a partner, great, contribute to the growth. You want more shares of this this great opportunity, grow more. Like if you're making the pie bigger, you'll get to have more of the pie. Then then everybody's kind of aligned towards growth. And 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 at least if you don't if you don't grow at that point, you made your own conscious decision to to not continue forward and participate in more equity. That's it. And I think the idea is obviously you're not adding additional profit to the rest of the group as if, if you've hit a threshold and, and plateau, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But the the rest of the company is growing. You you're not participating in that necessarily. So you you shouldn't be rewarded for that. So yeah, I think it's a you know, going back to kind of my background of what I experienced as a young guy in the business was, man, I kind of thought we had agreement and I thought that that if I did X, then I was going to get paid Y. And yeah. And lo and behold, it didn't quite work as well. And so I think our our whole philosophy has been, okay, let's let's be sure that it's very transparent. You know, everybody sees the numbers, they see the production, they see the stock plan. So there's, you know, it's, it's, even though we've got a pretty sizable group now, it becomes very transparent on what's happening and, and everybody wins. Right. If we all grow and if somebody grows more, then they should benefit more. Right. So, so talk to me about the kind of the, the organizational structure itself and the, and the role that you play, because you know you you've talked a few times of of you know your client base and what you do interacting with them. You know, a hundred plus employees is is more than a full time job unto itself to to handle that many people. So, how does this work from a like a management and leadership structure for the firm? Yeah, great question. I think in the early days we had. No real management. I was pretty good at leadership, but I'd had pretty poor management skills and quite frankly, just wasn't interested. So that really required, it was kind of like, hey guys, here's the direction we're running and and why don't you come on board? And so we had a lot of hard charging advisors that were growing and scaling and building. And, and quite literally, we had very, very little infrastructure. So I think that was actually a good thing in the day because we were spending all of our money and energy and in, in, in building our revenue. Right. But it was pretty exhausting from a you know personal perspective because I yeah. was doing all the all the branch management stuff, and so phase one of that I think was kind of this whole concept of empowering the advisors to run their team was something that was really important. So as I look back, so. In the early days, I was responsible for, and obviously the team was helping, but we were we were hiring the admin and doing all that, and it was kind of a done at the corporate level. And I think a good change for us was probably eight or nine years ago, where 
we really allow those advisors to kind of own and manage that process of their team. And so we want to empower them to recruit and hire good support staff and pay them well and retain them and always be hiring ahead and, and investing in their team. So that's been a philosophy that we've had, but but that's we've been able to kind of delegate or transition some of that responsibility to each of the individual teams. But from that, they get a lot of ownership and autonomy on what they want to do. So that has helped a lot. But to answer your question specifically now, we have we have hired a COO just in the last nine months or so. He's dynamite, was a 25-year veteran from the industry in Chicago. So he's moved down to kind of really help us with all the operational structure. We have had a full-time compliance officer for probably the last 12 or 14, 15, 16 years. She's incredible. She has a team of two that help her with all the compliance. We have a really talented CFO that's been with us from the beginning, part-time early on and now full-time for the last 12 or so years doing all the accounting function. And she has a team of a couple that help with that work. And so we now, as we've evolved, we have somebody that does kind of HR role. We have somebody that does marketing. We have kind of a facilities person. So things have evolved over time, but early on and really until the last, I'd say four or five years, it was really, we had somebody help me with compliance. We had somebody helped with all the accounting and the rest of it was the advisors and I were kind of running the the charge. And so I'm thankful for where, where we've been, but I'm really excited about where we are now because investing in kind of this infrastructure has really made a big difference. And then we have about six of our advisors that are paid a leadership kind of stipend, but they make some revenue for kind of being a sales leader and working with a handful of advisors on a one-on-one basis. So, so you've got advisors that take on some leadership opportunities and essentially get get their regular advisor comp and a kicker for this extra leadership stuff. Then you've got some people that are in standalone dedicated leadership roles like your COO, who I'm I'm presuming then is is not client facing at all, is is solely focused on just the all of these operational functions of how do we manage the firm. Yeah, that's right. So I'm really excited about having that. I think that's a hire that we probably should have done five, six years ago, but it's going to be real fun. Was there a trigger or something? Like what What got you to the point of doing it now? Well, I think we just realized that what has happened is our CFO and our compliance officer and a couple of these other folks were really doing everything. And you know the advisors were out there running around talking with clients and trying to serve them well. And so I think I realized, gosh, we're going to – these ladies are working really, really hard, but it has it wasn't fair that they had such responsibility. And so we needed to provide some support. And so that's we've really been fortunate that they were willing to take on so much, but I think we recognize that in order for them to continue to thrive and they needed to have somebody who could do take some of the pressure off of their roles right. that they really weren't enjoying doing as much. And so how does the business get run now on an on an ongoing basis? Is this like a, a leadership team that meets on an ongoing basis of certain, you know, C level folks that are are involved? How does how do you run just so many people? 
Yeah, so we have, and it evolves over time, obviously, as things kind of change. But the system we're in now, which I'm really excited about, is we've always had a leadership board, which is primarily, well, not primarily, only advisors and our CFO and our CEO. So that's been something we've had forever. And so what that really does is kind of just has consistent buy-in. And and like all, all of your advisors, a representative no, group? Uh, well, it started so off like as, you have a lot of advisors. That would be a very crowded room. Yeah. In the early days, it was all of us because sure. uh, uh, we were small. But now we, yeah, I think the leadership board is about 10 of kind of the senior advisors that have volunteered to be part of this leadership board. And so we, we meet now once a month and the goal is that we're not taking a significant amount of time and we're not trying to get them involved with every decision, but I just pretty conscious about wanting to be sure that they are in the know of any major decisions and helping get feedback on, on things that, that we're doing on a weekly basis that I want to be sure that they're staying in the, in the loop. But all these are advisors that are out there working every day to serve their people. And so I spend probably 30, 40% of my time on, on this kind of company leadership stuff. And so trying to set culture and ensure that we're making the right decisions and doing those kind of things. And, and then the 70% or so working on my individual client base. And, and so now we're really having kind of this senior level of our COO and his team and our CFO and her team and our compliance officer and her team really working on the day-to-day of running the business. And us advisors get to kind of come in and chime in and make suggestions and recommendations, and, and then they get, they, they're tasked with carrying it out. So, so as you look back on the, on the journey, what surprised you the most about path of building a, a large advisory business? Well, I, I think it's been the thing that, that probably has been the biggest surprise and challenge because I just constantly am, am passionate about it is ensuring that our that our advisors are thriving and happy and doing well. You know, because at, at the end of the day, if we can get more advisors up quicker, get them to be productive and serving clients and and generated revenue, then the rest of the business is kind of taking care of itself. So that's been probably, I guess, the biggest joy. So it was the biggest surprise. The biggest surprise. Let's see. That's a tough one. I uh, yeah. What you thought it was going to be, or how you thought it was going to build, versus what what happened when reality <laughs> showed up. Yeah, I think maybe not a surprise, but we're a change in is we really thought we were just going to go out and, and kind of buy and train advisors all across the country. So, you know, I've really used the Edward Jones model and said, gosh, we can do this, but we can work at doing it better with more focused on comprehensive planning and, and lead generation and all that kind of thing. And I think that my vision of having offices all over really changed when – I recognize kind of the value of this mentorship deal. So where I was thinking we might have a one or two man band in a bunch of different cities, we've really thrived by having a bigger office presence in a few cities where we can kind of build off that that successful advisor. Right. So, so bigger offices, fewer cities, just so you can get the density of 
multiple advisors with with multiple senior leads in one place where you can bring young people through and develop them and and have the mentor there have the have the person there that they can go sit in their hip pocket for two years and then have another one come through and do the same thing yep and then that that one that was in the hip pocket can you know a couple years later can train another and so yeah i think if there's been a big strategic shift from what i envisioned when we first started doing all this to where we are now is and not to sound like a broken record, but the the value and the multiplication factor of partnering and doing this mentorship has just been a game changer. And it's just something that as I look with all my friends and colleagues that are in the business, I just think that there's a huge opportunity for people to implement that. And the cool thing is I think their life is better off. They're able to grow and serve clients and excel and have more life work-life balance. And I think they'll be surprised that these young folks will step up and really do a great job. And then I think at the end of the day, the clients get exceptional service because you have more people on the team that are able to, to help. What was the low point for you? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge or low point emotional is when you do pour in and you brought this up earlier but we've we've had a few of those guys where we have poured in and and have left and have done it in a way that you wish would have been different and that's probably one of the hardest things i've dealt with just personally in my life but particularly in the in the business world is that that's that's a hard pill to swallow and you just try to rewind and figure out how you could have done it differently and what how you got there and you just try to learn, I guess, from, from that and also recognize that, that if you're in this business of dealing with people, there's going to be circumstances like that where it doesn't always work out and, and you just wish that it, that it could always, everybody that you start with would finish together, but that obviously is not always going to work. Any, any particular takeaways from that of just the way you used to try to bring people on and develop them to get them to, to stay versus what you do now, having, having had a few that left. No, I think that because, you know, my tendency is to want to focus on a few that things for a variety of reasons just didn't work out. When you consider the fact that we have a hundred and some people that are committed and working really hard and doing a great job. And it's kind of like the football coach that everybody wants to ask about, the guy who's a free agent, not not signing and uh, missing camp, and yeah. he eventually says, "I just want to talk about the guys on the team." And so I think that that's something that I that, and that's probably the biggest reason why most advisors don't want to to grow or hire is because you know dealing with people is always an interesting endeavor and challenge. But I think going back to our original principle is that we want to not just rest on our success, but grow. And that just means that you can't grow without people. And so that's just something that, that we just have to be okay with. And it still doesn't mean it's that it's not disappointing and frustrating when it doesn't work, but you just do the best you can and ensure that the people that are on board and that you do everything you can to help those people be successful. The exciting thing is, is we have, had almost zero failure of people because they weren't successful. So really the the struggles we've had, to your point earlier, were folks that became really successful and 
probably thought the grass was greener someplace else or or the margins were better and and so you know it's just trying to understand that you don't take that personally you just understand that's business and you keep moving ahead so what advice would you give to young advisors looking to get started in their in their careers today what do you what do you because i'd frame it this way like what do you know now that you wish you could go tell you from 20 years ago i think and you you mentioned this michael that was about kind of the the millennials wanting to get rich quick and kind of shorten the runway or not being patient and and I think that there's there is a balance because you you, know, you obviously don't want to be in a kind of a relationship where it's not progressing, so you have to you have to be sensitive to that. I think that you, because I mentioned earlier, left our own devices. It's hard for people to come up with a succession plan and to follow through with it. And so you, I think, particularly if they were working for a small practice, that is something they have to be really careful about that they just don't get stuck in a in a rut along those lines that the practice I, that I was started with after I left, there were five accountants that worked on the tax side that had a hundred years of experience with that firm that left. So Ouch. I think they saw a young guy come in that was kind of similar to the, their life experience. And, and they saw that I really, I think had good intentions and wanted to be there long term, but, at, but after, a relatively short period of time realized it wasn't going to work. And so I had to make the tough decision to move on. Right. And I think that they saw, gosh, maybe that had been happening to them for those years. And so they, they all left. And so I, I'm just oh. reiterating the point that, that as a leader, I need to be sure that we follow through with what we say and that we do the right thing and that we're always generous and accountable and doing all those things. So I think that's really important but i i think that the advice i give to the young person is within reason to really bury their ego and and just figure out a way that they can work really really hard and make themselves really really valuable and important to an advisor that they trust and that's honest and that has a good practice and that they can add a lot of value to and we've got guys doing that today that are right next door here in my office that Young person committed, working his tail off, got a great attitude, and that just encourages me to want to bless him even more and encourage his growth. And so, I think if I was talking to my son when he's ten years older and in the business, I think you just want to encourage him to find somebody that they could really trust, hmm. and man, put their head down and go to work and just make themselves really, really valuable to that person make a difference, work hard. What do you, I was say like when you're so early on, what, what do you, what do you do to make yourself valuable? Whatever you need, whatever they need. I think, you know, we, in our practice here, gosh, there's all kinds of projects and all kinds of follow-up and all kinds of client work that could be done that would add value. And so if we have somebody here that's willing to roll up their sleeves and not worry about their, what their bonus is going to be and what their trajectory is for the next five years, but they just come in and really make it happen. And whatever it is that a team needs, if you can get a lot done, you know, nobody, it's amazing how much you can get done if nobody cares who gets the credit. And I think that's something that, that we believe in and really promote. And yeah, I think if I can encourage a young person to, to do that, that there's just no way they won't, they won't win. 
So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so you, you've certainly built what I think anyone would objectively call very, very successful advisory business of you know, dozens of advisors and, and many billions of dollars. But how do you define success for yourself now? You know, I went through, are you familiar with Halftime, the uh, Bob Buford book and then program that's been around for 20 or 30 years, but Bob passed away last year. But that's kind of a movement of what what are you going to do in your second half or move from success to significance was their tagline of the book and kind of the program. And okay. so I think kind of like a lot of our clients, you know, I'm younger than I'm 44, so still have a lot of time to work and I've got four little kids and but I, I talk a lot about halftime with a lot of our clients because they're, they've been working hard and they're in their 60s and they sold their business and trying to figure out what are they going to do for the next 20 years to make an impact. And so I think I've kind of gone through that earlier than most, but it's been something that's kind of been in my heart for a long time. And so I think really I get excited about helping clients accomplish their goals, which requires me to invest more in a team because I think I can't do that alone. So that's been something that I think we just really I'm passionate about is serving them. But I recognize that means we've got to hire people, which means I have to be on my game with training and leading and building people and watching these advisors be successful and grow and then help bring another guy along is something that really gets me excited and then, as I said, I've got four kids. So I think over the last couple of years, I've transitioned to being maybe a workhorse in the practice and willing to invest and delegate even more and more and more than I never would have done even two or three years ago. So I can have a little bit more margin and capacity to be a little bit better dad and husband. So hmm. that's what I'm working on. Very cool. I, I love just that as as far as you've as far as you've come, you still view it as like, this is, this is just what I'm working on now. <laughs> like we're not done. We're not there. Like this is just the part I'm working on now. I, I love that mentality of, of just continuing growth or continuing evolution of, of what we do and where we focus our energy, which I guess is part of the, the Bob Buford theme of, of that transition from success to significance. That's right. Yeah, and you know it goes quick, doesn't it? I mean, I'm uh, probably halfway through my career, and uh, you know, I, it's easy to forget how scary and hard and scrappy you have to be to get started in this business. I mean, it's it is not easy, and yeah, I, I think it's fascinating how quickly we can kind of forget those hours and fears and all the work that took that went into make you know, just surviving. Yeah. But then you wake up and you're halfway through and then, you know, I can see where 20 years later it's going to be and I'm, my team will be ready to put me to pasture. And so I'm excited about the rest of our team being able to take that over. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a work in progress, that's for sure. Well, very cool. Well, I appreciate you, Jeff, for taking the time just to share the the path, the journey and what you've been through and where it's going from here. Well, I appreciate you. I think you're making a huge difference when really digging into the details and getting it under the hood and figuring out what's really happening. And it's easy to see all the success, but 
really for folks to realize that everybody's going through similar challenges. And if we all are in this together, we'll all do better. So I'm grateful for you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.